You're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. I'm a cloud-native DevOps course creator, consultant, and manager of this growing community on cloud-native DevOps. This podcast is an edited-down, audio-only version of my YouTube live show, which airs on Thursdays at brett.live. This podcast and all the free stuff I create is made possible by my supporting members. Thank you all so much for your continued patronage. There are well over 100 of you buying me a coffee every month, which makes that just 1% of the people that read, watch, or listen to this content every month. I'm hoping we can double that to 2% this year. And as they say, membership has its privileges. So you can find out how to support this show, my cloud native training, and our DevOps community at brettfisher.com. In this episode, I'm joined by Nirmal Mehta as co-host, and we have a special guest, Edith Levine, the founder and CEO of Solo.io. Edith focuses on service mesh, API gateways, and multi-cloud networking. This is Edith's first time on the show, but it's not the first time we've talked about Solo or service mesh. And in this episode, we talk with Edith about ambient mesh. That's Istio's new product that simplifies the install and infrastructure cost, essentially, of running Istio. I'm really hopeful that this is going to help a lot more people implement Istio because traditionally it does have a lot of parts and a lot of cost with the sidecar approach. But this new approach reduces the number of essentially proxies and parts that you're running on each node of your Kubernetes cluster. So please enjoy this episode with Edith from Solo. Hello. Let's get to it. We've got special guests here today on the show. Thank you so much, Edith Levine from Solo.io. Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I know we're going to get some questions. I wanted to back up a minute before we even get into the nerd stuff and talk about you and Solo.io and how that all got started. Because I think Nirmal was there. I first saw you speak at DockerCon 20, I think it was 2016 or 2017. I can't, I think it was 2017. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. And that was, I guess, early days for Solo.io? Yeah, very early. I think back then we were like maybe six, seven people. You know, we I think it was less than six months that we started. So definitely long time ago. I remember yeah. you doing a demo of distributed tracing. Yeah. That was blowing my mind. <laughs> at that, at that. Yeah, honestly, like it's funny, but I think that in that talks that I talked, what was like six, seven, five, I know, something like that. With Solo, it's building today, it's the same thing that I talked about in five or six years ago. It just was way, way ahead of the time. So five or six years ago, and now the market is kind of like ready for it, right? Yeah. But, <laughs> but if you remember, it was all about that, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was saying before the show that I remember when I was watching it, we were lucky, Nermal. You, you were there, right, in 2017? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And Docker was nice enough to make you do your talk twice. Once before yeah. the keynote, and we all got to be in sort of a private little briefing room. We got this. I thought they were. I thought it was like a Docker product, but then I realized, oh no, it's your thing. It's it. Your yeah. Docker's just bringing you in because that's how much they were excited about it. The idea of Solo IO was we've got to give you the insider track before we show it off to the rest of the world. And I remember feeling that feeling I I had when I first understood Docker, where I was like, this there's a lot of magic here. I don't understand how it's all working. But yeah. I think I want it. I mean, it was a bit, it was a easy sell for me. So 
tell me about like the origin, like a little bit of that origin story. How, why did you start this? How did this start? Yes, yeah, so I was in the open source for a while before that. I was doing, I was one of the persons trying to push Unicare back then. So Docker kind of like just got out and then Unicare started to be an interesting thing. I was in EMC back then, actually. And I worked at the city office of so my job was to do all the cool stuff. But, so I was all big kind of like on, you know, back then on Docker and Kubernetes and that it was in a mesosphere and, you know, this one problem. So, yeah. so that was what I was doing. And I was very excited to learn about Unicornal. It was a lot of low level stuff, you know, for the system. And I said to myself, wow, that's actually even more efficient than Docker itself. Can we actually figure out if that will be the next big thing? And I think that what I learned from this the most is that, <laughs> is that in order to make that kind of huge shift in the market like Docker did, it's really need to be huge differentiator for what there is in the market. And I think that Docker was that huge differentiator versus Unikernel was a little bit better, but really yeah. minimized better. So it yeah. wasn't worth for us to retool all of it, all our infrastructure. You know, so I was all in the open source community and so on. I decided to start solo, honestly, because honestly, big company are complicated. I thought we could do it way faster. And I wanted to be all focused about the technology itself. And now we're going to change the world versus, you know, like all the biocracy and happening in big company. So I just wanted to be about the technology and the engineers. And this is why I started. So, so that's kind of like how we started it. But then when I looked at the market, what we saw is that there is, you know, most, you could be already smart to understand that Kubernetes is the direction that everybody going to. So that's kind of like will be the de facto orchestration. But I think that what was literally back then is that while everybody is migrating their monolithic to microservices, the big problem that we'll have next will be the network stuff. And the reason is because and like now when you're taking this big binary and cut it to small pieces, you need somehow to connect, right? And yeah. now it's everything on the network. So you need to make sure that it's secure. And honestly, we talked about open tracing, but how do you debug something like that that is so distributed? Yeah. So yeah. all those problems I felt that will be something that we will need to attack. And then I noticed LinkerD was back then on the first, first, first version. So yeah. it wasn't this, wasn't. I like to say that it wasn't a sidecar, it was a side bus when they put in the beginning. And it was awesome. so huge, Java. Yeah. yeah. And then I saw SDO and make a little bit more go to the right direction and say, okay, that's going to be huge. So it will take years until people will adopt it. That's what will be the fact eventually. So this is why we kind of like was leaning to it. And I started with the gateway just because, because I knew it would take a lot of time. So we wanted to start with something that's easier to adopt. What was your vision back then? And how does that match with what you see today, what you're going to be presenting today? Yeah, honestly, I have to say that it was almost like <laughs> one to what I said, which is pretty lucky me. So, so let me explain you again, when I started the company, it's companies so eventually need somehow to show traction or otherwise, you know, like to get the next one. So when I looked at it, I said to myself immediately, listen, like SDO in my opinion will be everywhere someday, but it's going to take it a while until we get. So there's two things that I need to do. Number one, figure out what can I sell today or make at least user use today because that's what you really want. And SDO wasn't back then something that you could use. So that's where I started in the gateway and focused a lot on the gateway. And I said, look, the gateway is a stepping stone to the market. And honestly, there's a lot to do innovative there because that was a very kind of like old fashioned, honestly, service mesh, a, a, a ecosystem, which, you know, Mulsoft and, you know, Apple T and Kong relatively 
you know, know the proxy that I will build my stack on. So when I looked at it, I said, that's the first thing that we need to kind of like attack. And that's what we did, our gateway. But the second thing that they tried to figure out is I said to myself, okay, but here's the thing. How am I making this service mesh adoptable and everywhere? So what I did pretty much at the beginning, I said to myself, let's envision that this is going to happen. Like STL is going to be it. So now the question is, what would be the next problem that people will have? And what I thought about the next problem, I thought about an orchestration problem because most likely you will have more than one clusters. Usually you're putting one instance of service mesh per cluster. So how do you manage all of them? Are you physically going to go to each of them? Of course not. You need to build kind of like a CICD and, you know, somehow to automate all the processes. And that's basically what we build in, so, in Sol Next, which was the management plan, which is what we call Blue Mesh today. But basically the management plan to op- orchestrate all those service mesh and do, you know, cross-cluster crazy stuff if you need to and so on. So then observability of all of them and so on. So that's kind of like the two stuff that I think we started pretty much at the beginning. And again, that's what we're selling today. We have tons of customers running it. And I think that that's exactly what the market going to, if you see what all the hyperscale are doing. But all the new service management came after it and trying to do the same thing. A little bit too late, but trying. I think that's what we see. So, so it's not that different than what we see. We, we did build it more like to the size and to the top because we learned a lot from our customers. So for instance, how do you consuming it and develop a portal is something that people ask for a lot. So we're using backstage, right? And kind of like mm-hmm. to the stuff. How do you do an entity in workload that are not Kubernetes? Oh, fire. Mm-hmm. So let's bring that to the stack. So we're kind of like growing the stack by, you know, bringing more and more stuff as we learn what the customer really wants. But it's not that different at the point that's the problem right to attack them and say that, you know, exactly what people is trying to fix today. So was lucky. They did. Yeah. I love your mentioning of sort of we needed to figure out how to troubleshoot distributed systems because I really do completely agree that it feels it's a completely different troubleshooting mechanism and i'm a little old so when i got started in tech it was pre tcp ip right it was pre ip networks and we got to implement ip we had to read the entire book because we had to figure out how to make it work dhcp was a luxury we didn't even we barely had dns right like it was very raw back then and so i had all mm-hmm. the advantages of learning the stuff on the ground but i find that a lot yes. of people come in to programming, come into DevOps, and they have they really don't have a strong IP set of fundamentals, right? Yeah. Yeah. They maybe know what a subnet is. They maybe had to do it in class once in university. Maybe, you know, they learned a little bit about binary and maybe how that can translate to an IP address, but like they don't have like this core set of skills of I've got five systems. How do I correlate all this information and understand how they're all talking to each other? It's a it's actually a hard problem. I feel like we're not as an industry, we're not really doing good at training people on the skill set of troubleshooting or managing distributed system communications and stuff like that. Do you have any do you have any wisdom on that? This is actually funny, so I mean, you're going even lower to the stack, but if you're thinking about the way that we're managing networking all our life, let's, as you said, go back then. I mean, back then, if you wanted networking, you needed to actually take switches and bridges and actually connect them physically, mm-hmm. right? To get that network. And... All of this we done by the networking team. And then there were kind of like innovation, right? To build, you know, virtual virtualization. And they basically came with NSX and all this stuff that basically will, you know, Nasira did an amazing job there. But basically, if you think about the way the designers, it's not that different. 
Like it's still talking about vSwitch and vBridge. Like it's still, that's basically the core API. I think when it's, when we went to Kubernetes, you can start thinking about more about wait, but people just want network. They don't care about bridges and networks. This is really low stuff for them. So then we did two things that I think is very smart. Number one, how we, you know, basically make it damn simple for the networking to come. Don't worry about it. You know, it's just going to happen. Just use the CNI to work, right? It's a commodity right now. And then the second thing that I think we did nicely is separate a little bit the security from the networking and the point that not the implementation of it, but at least the API, the mm-hmm. policy networking versus the actually connectivity, which I think is brilliant. So now think about it a little bit more. We do want to do stuff. Like when you're talking about networking, you're always talking about three things, right? You're talking usually about connectivity, you're talking about security, and you're talking about the presumability. That's the three things mm-hmm. that you really know. And that's true for everything. Like if you look at Palo Alto, they're talking about, you're looking at Cisco, they're talking about, if you're looking at service mesh companies, they're talking about. That's what people are doing when they're talking about networking. Mm-hmm. So now the question is, when we in the service mesh ecosystem went, we said, how can we do this even simpler or bring another version more to the application layer? And I think that's what we try to do with salesmen. So yeah, you're getting those overlay, but honestly, it's APs, right? And APs is fine, but in the today mar- market, I will prefer to talk about identity, right? Workload identity. I think it's way more strong. This is, otherwise it's limited. So, so to me, this is what service mesh is brought to the table. And it's everything that we let it do, a crypto, graphic identity, MTLN, the, the way we are attacking it's a little bit different and way more on the application level versus talking about, as you said, low-level stuff. And I think that's basically the layers that is, is unique here and talking a lot about, you know, stuff that we can do in layer seven, for instance, right? Not only layer four. This translation from what we were used to in the past, thinking about what networking was at a lower level, what's the new abstraction? What's the new layers that you think we should be thinking about in this service mesh current state yeah. and future state? So when you're thinking about in generally, like when you're thinking about, I think that each of those problems that we describe, right? Observability, security, travel sharing, all these stuff, we need to think about what we can we do and how it's going to be all in during the cloud today. Because as you think, we are bombs, right? That's what we're doing. And there is a big stack. It's not one. So now, usually when I started solo, I was lucky to see the seven layers, kind of like diagram. There was sign model that we all know. And I like to say, here's what we do, right? In layer four, there's seven and so on. I think that now, you know, in solo internally, we like to talk about it as the stack, right? What is the stack specifically that we're talking about? We internally calling it K, right? Because it's kind of like there is an experiment for what we believe initially that stack. So the first one is C, right, for the cake. And we like to, it's basically a CNI, right? Now you can also, you know, we solo specifically also using Cilium a lot, but in the nutshell, this is a CNI because CNI to me is a commoner. That's the way I'm looking at this. This is something that is there. There's people that supply this. Honestly, there's not a lot of interesting stuff happening there. I know EBPF is very exciting, but if you're thinking about how faster EBPF doing it versus something like IP table we're talking about, a 10 of a millisecond. I mean, honestly, no one care about, I don't think, very rarely you care about that, that, you know, latency. So I don't think that this is what it's special, but, you know, Cilium is personally part of the CNCF, I think. So if I have to choose a problem, we would choose this. But the C is basically for CNI. The, then the A, A is everything that related to MBN. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with MBN, but MBN is basically, it's a, it, project. It's not, it's an initiative that started in the SEO community. It's actually started by Solo and by Google. 
two years ago, we started basically thinking about, can we simplify service mesh? And we individually basically came with the concept of MVM in Solar and in Estio and in Google, sorry. And because we had very good relationship and partnership, in some point, me and Louis Ryan, who was the founder of, is the founder of Estio, of Estio is in Google, basically realized that we're doing the same thing internally. So what if we were basically partners? So Solo and Google partnered a lot a year ago, over a year ago, a year ago, we announced it a year and a half ago. And we basically start kind of like merging what we each have to this stack with Colombian. And we introduced it to the open source community. And what we try to think there is that how can we make service mesh simpler? And I think that the idea of service mesh was can we abstract the network? Can we take the operational complexity outside of the business lot. That's what it is, right? This is why everybody is trying to do basically. We wanted to separate that, that way that the application team can own the business logic and will not be very tied to the operation level. But the way we implemented it is with Cypher. And Cypher is a very, very, you know, it's really, really easy. Parts of you wanting to, for instance, I don't know, redeploy the proxy because you have some CVEs or something like that. Guess what? You need to redeploy the application again as well. So it's not like, really well like this. Yeah, right? like you mentioned, a sidecar can easily turn into a side bus, right? Exactly, exactly. So when we try to figure out how to re-envision that, we said we really need to make sure that the, the operation will be better because that's kind of like affecting on the operation, right? If what you need to do is every time you want to operate for a CVEs or change something, you need to go to talk to the application team or on it and tell them that you're going to redeploy. We didn't achieve what we wanted to do, right? So the question is, how can we do it? And that's where we came with MBN. And MBN, again, solving a lot of problems. There is three big ones. I personally, the one that I'm excited the most is the operational one. We really, really, really abstract now the operations from there. The, so it's really, really, it, it's easier to operate in your organization and implement and get a lot of value. The second one is everything that related to cost. And we all in almost recession. I don't know. Every day they're telling me something else. But obviously the market is not doing well. And what we see in general, it's from our customer or in generally that market is that people are trying to save money. And infrastructure is a costy piece in your wasting or you spending money. Can we reduce that and MPN be sad because it's not doing a sidecar anymore. It's doing only one proxy per node actually reduce this fight tremendously. I think that it's 99, like we had a lot of blog talking about how much money we kind of like reducing. But there was even customer that told us that they will be able to actually buy a product because they're saving so much time and money in the infrastructure, which is insane, right? So that's that. Then everything that related to, uh, you know, the functionality and everything is going to be equivalent. And even latency, we think that we can get better. We already see better performance. So all that point, this is MBM's big. I'm really excited about it. And honestly, like working with customers, excitement in the market in generally. And it's all open source, of course. So, you know, Solo is a main contributing for MBN together with Google, and we are pushing it to get to GA hopefully soon. But we're really excited about that. So that is the A. Let's bring us to the K. The K, it's easy. You don't need to explain it's Kubernetes. And the last and not least is AE for an Envoy. And Envoy is what we believe that is the main proxy, you know, in the market today for layer seven management, mainly, right? So we're calling it in the notion of MBN waypoint, but basically Envoy, just the way build, the way that it's 
driven by an API, the way that you can customize with an filter. There's so many beneficial for us. We're working with it for six years and we can't talk enough about that. So that's kind of like the last piece of the cake, right? Of the cake. So, of the cake. I was actually surprised <laughs> that cake had a C in it because like, if it's in the Kubernetes world, it's not allowed to have Cs. So I like it. We were actually talking before the show about this is like, this is a good analogy to LAMP stack, which if those of you out there, if you were around 20 years ago, <laughs> LAMP stack was the cool thing. And it was just a combination of really not related. I mean, technologies that could easily be stacked on top of each other in a different way. But PHP was having a moment. MySQL was this cool open source database and it was freeing us from Oracle and Microsoft SQL and all the things. And so and Apache web servers, of course, which are still, I don't think I go a month without demoing something on HTTPD, so it's still a thing. So we had that, was it Linux, Apache? MySQL. MySQL and PHP. So that was the stack. Yeah. And so now we have this service mesh stack. And I'm going to, this is a great it's lead into It's networking stack, right? Because it's yeah. even taking, right? Yeah. It's true. Yeah, because you've got the CNI component, right? We have a question that is a good segue off of this. What is the main difference between service mesh and API gateway? Is it all about security? So it's, as I said, in networking, you're always talking about three things, right? Which is there's, you know, uh, security, observability, and transformation, connection, connectivity, right? So that's both of them doing exactly the same. The only difference is that in the API gateway, usually you're using one that is entry to something like as what is the gateway. And usually you're doing more stuff that related to external, you know, limiting a lot of stuff that is outside your organization. This is the feature that you will probably will be more interesting. Whereas the service mesh is more taking at what we calling east-west route. So once you are in the cluster and you right now wanted to talk to two services is talking to each other, that's the east-west traffic. And some of the stuff that you're doing on the gateway is not make a lot of sense to do on once you're already inside. So that's the huge difference. So there is the node south traffic, which is everything that goes to your cluster. And again, usually you don't know those people that are, right? Someone is coming and wanted to make a request. You don't know who it is. You need to be very careful about how I'm going to give until he go and what am I likely to do? Versus if it's already in your cluster, then now we're talking about identity, not of the users, but on the workload. Right? What is the identity of those services? Am I allowed to talk to each other? What are they can do and what and so on? So just different. Like for instance, you're not going to do probably transformation, which is something that is very popular when you're doing on the gateway. Transform mm -hmm. most likely not want to do that between services. Maybe that's what we see at least. So again, it's just it's the same idea of eventually it's the same technology in the point that it's a proxy, right? It's been yeah. used by a proxy, which is the data plan and a control plan that is basically giving configuration and fitting the proxy to make the proxy ability to make a decision when the request is coming. The only question is that, you know, it's a little bit different of if the request came outside or if the request coming inside. So this is our usual differentiating. I like it. I like that definition. So do, do those two things work together? Do you suggest that the use case for customers is to combine those things together? Definitely. So I mean, it's, so, so think about it. You, so we see in our customers do that. Mainly one of them, they basically using, they're calling it two tier, right? So basically they have one cluster management plan that basically has those gateway on top of it. They're doing a lot of the regimenting, ex, you know, external, all those stuff. And then there is another proxy that is basically an ingress to those clusters, but is really kind of like a go-to, it's not doing much, right? 
So that's one option. And the other option that we see is that people actually put in gateway in each of those clusters. And then you can, you know, then it's more like it's one big cluster. And if it's hit one of the clusters, it will know about the other clusters workload. And if it's not, it doesn't need to go to here. You will forward it to the one that the workload is on that cluster. That's the two types that we see. But personally, you know, the way we build it, the stack, the cake stack, is because our product is believe in, you know, tagline. It's basically any connection, any direction, one API. And this is why we believe, right? Because we really believe that eventually it's the same technology. So that one API that would drop gateway and mesh the same way, because honestly, eventually what you're doing is all those three things that we talked about. So this is our personal we believe in. So. And I do think that it's merged together. Like most of our customers are buying the mesh, they're usually buying also the gateway, because it's a cloud native gateway mm-hmm. that suits very nicely to the they go well together. In fact, when I'm thinking about whether you're an application architect or a infrastructure architect where you're designing traffic patterns, I, I would be curious, like your experience where in my own consulting, there's this moment where maybe it's their, maybe their, it's really just their adoption of Kubernetes, maybe, where they start to conceptualize this sort of, I guess it becomes a problem of the north-south versus east-west traffic. And they realize that, oh, Things in my cluster should ideally not go outside of my cluster to come back into the cluster. Exactly. And it and sometimes forces application design decisions, separate tools or different kinds of tools. Do you see that problem and do you see them just like using service mesh to solve all of it? Or does it solve that fundamental design decision? Or is that really more of an application architect kind of thing? I'm just curious. No, no, no. I think that this is where we started. I don't know. When we started, and I remember that because I was working in EMC, so in, with people that very closely when back on the day, right, before I started solo. And I think that's how it works in all those stacks, right? Basically, there's no problem if one microservices, one adopted the other one, they would go back to the get and they would go back. Like, oh my God, this is so not efficient, as you right. can probably assume. So I think that's what was very nice about service mesh that we said, you know what, it doesn't need to go there. We can actually go directly. We just need to make sure that it's still secure. And we need to make sure that it's still giving you observability. And so I think this is exactly where it's target. What we see is this. If you are a small cluster, usually, honestly, less, maybe service mesh is not the first thing that you will put in. Like a small company have tools, very little cluster. Don't worry about that. You shouldn't. Right. But get where you need to, because you have no choice. It has to be secure. If you have very little, don't worry about it. What we see is that where it's more interesting. So first of all, we see, as I said, Fed rounds and a lot of stuff that related to security, zero trust, that's big, big, big driver from service mesh. And we get it if like, it's really like tons of customers. So I'm overall a observability, big ones as well. Like, listen, I mean, I remember when I did this tracing demo, Jerome from Docker sent me this tweet that I using it all the time. And that was a tweet that someone said, I migrate from my monolithic to microservices. And right now, every time that I have an outrage, it's like a murder mystery. And doesn't even know how to start and go about doing it. So, so true. That was, so it's true. true. And every time I'm trying to get everybody else, because it's true, it's so funny. So listen, when you have a big cluster, a lot of application, it's really hard to understand what's going on. And I think that's where this stack is helping you, the kick, because, you know, is the packages not out of here? Is that it's, this is a problem? In the, like, where is the problem? So this is one thing that I, we see a lot. Yeah, and then if you're already there, so you know, it's nice that you can actually control all your resilience of the mesh for one yeah. location, right? So, yeah. and of course, you know, when I'm saying zero trust is also, you know, it's identity on MTLS as well as all the authorization 
applications, right? Which is very important. It sounds like with the ambient mesh, you can kind of get closer to the balance between reliability, resiliency, the security aspects, regardless of where the workload is servicing that request and authentication authorization is coming in, and also efficiency and cost and scale and performance and getting closer to being able to balance all of those concerns that are pulling your architecture in different directions and help you navigate those compromises in the architecture. Is that kind of where the sweet spot is for the cake? But but also more than this, I mean, the way we change the change of the shift of the cloudless motion, which is MBN, is giving us other stuff. Like for instance, what we noticed is that a lot of our customers are interested in starting with zero trust, so they need MTLS. But honestly, they don't really care about layer seven too much at that point. Like it's not that they maybe observability is not the first thing that they want to do attack or resilient. Mm. They still in the old fashion needed to basically adopt those sidecars, which means that they're getting the complexity of managing, which is all they want is really MTLN. So right now in MBF, they basically kind of like separating layer seven with layer four and layer seven. Which basically means that if all you're interested is in MBN, you know, basically everything that's related to encryption MTLS, you can adopt it very easily, right? With what we're calling Z-Tile. That's basically giving you that. It's so damn simple. You don't need to change anything. You don't need, your application doesn't even know that you apply that on your cluster, which is fantastic. And then if you wanted to start adopting the layer seven, now you can adopt and bring Android to the stack, right? And then you can basically do a lot of the stuff that you want for different stuff now. We personally have observability also in this data itself. So basically getting it all. But that's, I think, where is the magic is. No, honestly, what I learned in my career right now, definitely in open source, but then bringing open source to the enterprise, which is only why we're doing it. We're doing all of this eventually because we want everybody to use our software. So it's very important to understand how the user is going to adopt it and how to make it very simple and where is the hiccup that they have by adopting it. And I think that's what MBN got very right, right? They understand the relationship inside the organization and also the adoption kind of like way. I mean, think about it. Like, I mean, adopting CNI, I can hear a lot of other people right now talking about Silvio and CNI. CNI is a commodity. It's not giving you much. It's basically all of them giving almost the same thing. But the adoption of getting it, replacing your CNI, that's a, a lot, right? And usually you're not getting a lot of them return. Versus the beautiful of MBN is just apply, no matter which CNI you're using, just apply it on the cluster that you're going. Your application doesn't even know you don't need to redeploy your application. You're just getting the benefit without all that. So, and I think that's the big win for, for that architecture, if it makes sense. That does make sense. Brett, I think there was another question. Yeah. Where do you all see service mesh going in the next few years? I was told once that service mesh is now where Kubernetes was about five years ago, hype-wise. Yes, which is good, right? It's adopted, which again, honestly, like, let's be honest, it's not an easy thing. I mean, there is a reason why as Google, right? And I solo started working on it six years ago and on it right now, we got it very right and we learned, and this is, we adjust, right? Because it's not a simple thing. I mean, you think about it, but I mean, a lot of the stuff that we're leveraging, we're leveraging ABPF, we're leveraging, you know, Rust as a proxy. We did so many stuff that we learned to make sure that it will be very easy to adopt. So I did believe, and this is what I said in the beginning, when I started Solar, I knew it would take five, two years until we get that maturity that actually I'm telling you, like, you're using it every day. You just don't know that. Like, I mean, as I said to you, 
our customers personally that the one I know because that's a customer that we solo have. I'm sure it's more than there's more in the world adopting service mesh, but you know, you when you're filling your taxes, you're using it. When you're buying, I don't know, Chipotle, Domino's Pizza, a Chick-fil-A, you're using it. When you, I don't know, swiping your card, you all you, you know what I mean? And more and more mm. you're buying your car for Carflux, you're using Fiverr. Everything you're using is basically SDRs implemented behind the scene. You just don't know that. So to me personally, it's really, really exciting. And again, we have hundreds of customers like it. And it's always fun, and, you know, <laughs> to go somewhere and say to my kids, oh, no, they're using us and they're using us and they're using us because it's everywhere. So it's really exciting. So I do believe that it's as starting to be as adopted as Kubernetes. I think that, you know, we see, you know, see it everywhere and we're excited about it. And I think MBN is just going to make this adoption even more you know, easy. And again, for good reason, because I think that the only thing that I can say about this too, which is very important, and service machine generate. First of all, there's a reason why everybody else is trying to get to, try to introduce a new mesh to the market, right? Because this is what everybody needs. It's a real problem that people are solving. So again, we just added six years ahead of time. This is why SDR is so good. And, and we learned a lot from running it in production. And I think that the second one is that, uh, yes, so I really believe that this is right now is the right time to, to make this mass adoption for that. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest for a moment. Much like in the early days of Kubernetes, okay, so I'm an operator, so I come from the ops side of this, right? So when I think of systems, whether it's Kubernetes itself or some other infrastructure or something like Istio, I think about not j I think a lot more about day two ops, like you know the things that I have to do later, the upkeep, the complexity that I'm going to have to help the developers with, you know, the burden I'm giving them is more YAML they have to write. And I was not a, I was not a huge fan of Kubernetes in the early days, mostly because of that sort of like the implementation and management problem, which we have much better tooling now, like installers are almost a dime a dozen at this point. You know, we have lots of options up and down the stack for how to get Kubernetes, how to maintain it. You can now use it without ever having SSH or touching a node. All that's great. And with service mesh, my big, my initial hangup was the joke around, you know, turtles all the way down, proxies all the way down. And I saw that infrastructure cost and management as this huge weight right. that I was, I would have to carry with me. So I would hesitate even suggesting it to customers, even when I knew that they could probably use, like maybe if they don't have the requirements for MTLS or whatever, and maybe it's just observability they might benefit from. I would sometimes hesitate because I was afraid that they would, like, there would be a, a, a kickback. Like, they would yell at me for suggesting yeah. a complex burden type of additional stuff on top of them already implementing Kubernetes, which a lot of times was new to them. And I feel like this ambient mesh to me is like, it's the sign to me, I feel like, that, okay, now's the time to invest. 100%. And we're getting a much, like, I think you were saying before the show around, like, this massive cost reduction for your customers, you're seeing, you know, there's always these stories we hear around Kubernetes around the, you know, the cost of the infrastructure to run Kubernetes and the things on it. And so the app is like this little thing that runs on top and there's no all this other yes. stuff yes. underneath. 80% yeah. right. of your servers are for just running 20, the infrastructure. Yeah, like yeah. 20 backend services per app. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And, so, and I, we have hope. I guess I'm seeing the light. I'm starting to, oh, you're convincing me. I see so. the light. And as I said, what's good about what we did is that, you know, and this is what I started to say, I mean, we got the use case right. And this is was from the beginning at Service Mesh. The reason there was so much hype even six years ago, even though it wasn't ready, it was because people did have that problem. 
Like observability mm-hmm. is a real problem. NTLS is a real problem. We didn't change anything. The only thing that we changed is how we make the implementation better to make it easier to adopt. And I think that we got it. I am, you know, it was a lot of work with a lot of customers to get how to do this and where is the hurdles of why it's hard for them to adopt and all of this thing. Honestly, to me, MBN is like the best of all the world. You're getting everything you need. The operation is relatively very low and saving tons of money. So, so everything you went, they couldn't be better. So I'm personally extremely excited about it. And I will be honest with you, I also see this with our customers and our user in the open source community. Like there's a lot of excitement. Hmm. And you so, see this from the hyperscaler, scaler, right? The hyperscaler stuff. So Google is, uh, they started MBN with us. So of course they're on this, right? And, uh, you know, Microsoft announced that they're going to do MBN on, uh, that they're basically uh, offering MBN as part of their Azure stack. And I know that, you know, we're working a lot with AWS. We have partnership solo as partnership with AWS. I can tell you that they bring us to a lot of customers. <laughs> and knowing AWS, if they bring us to a lot of customers, eventually they follow with it themselves. So my guess is that eventually <laughs> it will be adopted by the three big cloud, which is a big maturity, right? Sign. Yeah, so to the folks out there that tried Istio and implemented our service mesh, got burned with the operational overload and overhead, let's say like 24 months ago, around that time frame, now's the time to come back and check out Ambient Mesh. Is that the right? 100%. Kind of- 100%. And it's not a, a GA yet, but we're working, as I said, like, I think there is like probably 30 or 40 people from Solar itself that contributing to the wow. to the SEO open source in order to make Ambient production ready and get it to the same maturity. And we want here for two years, right? So it should be right now just about. So I think right now it's going to be, and, and you know, STO by itself is going to be graduated. I think you guys know that mm-hmm. very soon. It's always devoted. So there's a lot of signs that showing, okay, now we agree, right? Everybody agree. STO is this service mesh that basically won that war. And MBN is the mode that everybody will use in order to run STO. So I'm very excited personally. I'm happy because for six years we're working on this. I know, finally. I love how, okay, so in case people didn't realize, because I didn't know this actually before we met today, three of the six TOC members. So if I want Istio expertise, I just need to come to Solo. Like basically. Yes. So I mean, this is interesting. I will tell you the story that happened. So as you know, I was in the open source pitching Istio, right? When we were talking six years ago. Yeah, yeah, And there was different people that doing it in the community. So one of them was the founder, Louis Ryan from Google. The other one was Lynn from IBM. IBM and Google is the one that announced HDO, right? So they were together. And there was Niraj who was in a startup called Espen Mesh, who basically was a spin-off of F5 for HDO. And there was Christian Posta who was from Red Hat, and he was the person mm-hmm. that's pushing it in Red Hat. And we just become such a good friends because that's, you know, we were in all those straps and talks in all those conferences. And the thing that I'm excited the most is that all of them joined Solo. So Louis Ryan is the CTO of Solo right now, is the founder of SDR. I'm here, of course. You know, and Rice is running all our engineering. Lynn running all our open source, and we have a big team of open source contributors. And uh, Christian is running all of field, uh, basically the field CTO, working actively with all the customers as well as evangelism, running the team of the evangelism. So we just, you know, honestly, we haven't last anyway because we just love each other and we love the technology. So. It's a lot of fun. It's the super fans. Um, yeah. I should mention while we're here, you well, there's a couple of resources too before we start. I got some more questions, but 
you have an academy. So there's, so you have the academy on-demand courses. You have a lot here, eBPF, of course, right. Cilium, all this stuff, Envoy, all the pieces of that cake stack. And then there's also something else that you also can get links below. You also have an ebook on Ambient Mesh Explains. Yeah, the Istio Ambient Mesh book by Lin Soon and Christian That's this one. Posta. Yeah. So yeah, so for those that want more information, of course, in the podcast, we'll put the links in the show notes and all that stuff so everybody yeah. can get it. Yeah. So, so, you know, we talked about, Sarah's mentioned about adoption and we believe in two things. First of all, as I said, the way we're working with our customers, we are with them, right? I mean, we were working with Slack. We make them successful. We have a lot of companies. So we saw a lot of pain point and we're helping them doing this. But the other thing more important than this, we want to make sure that they know how to do this. So a lot of the work that Solar is doing is basically is Solar Academy, which is how we teach people in the open source community. It's all for free. In the our enterprise customer, everybody is basically out to learn this amazing technology. So, you know, before we even announce Ambient, we already have workshops, books, you know, how do you actually, because that's all about, open source is all about adoption and you really need to make sure that people are capable of adopting it. It's not only about the algorithm writing the code and they're not clear it is. It's important too, but you also need to make sure that people can unlock it. So, so that's something that is extremely important. Yeah. As someone who teaches for a living, I, you know, this stuff is hard. And even yeah. after we've learned it, we, I mean, it's hard to imagine being that new person, right? Once we've learned it, it's like that human phenomenon. We, we don't know what it's like to be the noob anymore. And for years, people have asked me for a service mesh course, but I've been, again, because of that same sort of mindset I had around, eh, it's too hard. It's, it's, too it's hard. moving too yeah. fast. It's moving too fast. It's, there's a lot mm -hmm. of, there's a lot of choice and diversity and how do you make a, it's kind of like people ask for a CI course. And it's like, well, I'd have to pick a tool because I can't yeah. teach them all. And so I think I kept getting requests for an Istio course. And I was hesitant because of the, I just, I didn't, I wasn't convinced that the sidecar model was the long-term approach. So I'm glad to right. see this because now I'm like, maybe, maybe this is the thing that I should teach. And this is a question we have. Is someone asking, is ambient mesh as secure as the sidecar model? And that's a great question. So it is, first of all, I mean, a lot of the stuff that we're doing there in order to how to bring the traffic and redirecting that it, it is very secure and you'll see new stuff that Solo is doing in order to make sure that it's really, really, really secure. So the answer is yes. But we do see that if you have a very, 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 you know, workload that you extremely worry about it, you can run it side by side. What it means is that you can potentially say those workloads I wanted to have a still sidecar because I'm feeling very uncomfortable. But how mm. important they are, and the rest will run with the Z tunnel. So you can do that too. But I mean, honestly, like there is a lot of internal work that we do right now. We'll give it eventually away. Basically, make sure that it's as secure, one hundred percent, as the site. So that that's yeah. you know, honestly, like otherwise it's never going to adopt, right? I mean, that right. thing that that was the base. First, we need to make sure that that is secure. Now we can talk about the other thing that we're trying to. So right. so that was very important to us. And don't forget, we did it together with Google. As part of this, we run it by the security team of the Google Cloud and what they think about. So this is like, it wasn't something that, you know, oh, we came out from when we actually made a lot of right. talk to other people and so on before we decided to introduce that. I was imagining, I think it was yesterday, I was thinking about questions about, you know, having just, I actually learned about Ambient Mesh because of you becoming coming on the show. I missed the bus or the car yeah. or the train or whatever. Right. I missed that last year when it was announced and... One of my big questions was, you know, I was trying to imagine how this came about, right? And obviously, like, it sounds, it feels yeah. like a lot of the things that I assumed were true. 
it, there's a high infrastructure cost to service mesh. There's a high complexity cost of the initial sort of iterations. And I was wondering if the simple, like us evolving to this, I'm going to call it one, one proxy per node approach or however you want to say it, was a, a matter of just simply getting the isolation and the sort of like the implementations into the proxies and the different tunneling technologies because the sidecar model to me seemed almost like we're just taking existing tools that we have and we're making them and work. Flying. Right, yeah. yeah. And like this proxy, we don't we know that these two won't be able to talk to each other because they're literally separate containers for, you know, for each one of our pods or whatever and we don't have to worry about security isolation inside the same process and all the stuff that I guess you would have to worry about if you consolidate like this. So, is that what's been happening is sort of like you initially visioned this as there's I guess my question is when you started, it sounds like you already had this vision for it's going to get easier. It's going to get simpler and yeah. smaller and less less of a burden. And you saw that happening at the beginning. Yeah. So I don't know if you're familiar with Solvine, but I can tell you that the thing that I care about the most, and this was something that was very highly in the DNA of Solvine is, you know, I'm engineers, right? So I do care about code a lot. But eventually we need to make sure that people that's you know people will use it. And honestly, right. this is something that I learned from being in EOC and the Unicorn because Unicorn wasn't adopting it and it broke my heart, right? I was doing all this work, it was so cool and no one wanted to use that. So, you know, so if something I learned from this is that, you know, we're building not so fun, we're building it for people to actually get benefit. That's what we want when we want to influence the world. So when to me, the driving for MBA was mainly on the operational. I will argue that not on the cost. That's just a nice side effect, honestly, that right now we're leveraging from it as a vendor. But honestly, it wasn't about that. It was more about the fact that operationally, it was hard. As you said, the second day operation was hard to manage, right? You have a CV. What are you doing right now? You know, you're doing this. It's just become way, how is your, you know, put it on one class, not a big deal. How do you put it to run in your infrastructure, and that's the work that Solo was doing, right? How do we make it MBN, STL generally, you know, enterprise ready, you know, enterprise ready that actually can be implemented and consumed. And I think that honestly, in every technology, Kubernetes was the same thing, right? When Kubernetes was introduced to the world by Google, actually the people that really make it enterprise ready were the red hands of the world, right? Because they had customers that run in production. Mm -hmm. So. So to me, this is what we were fighting. So to me, the MBN was all about the operation in the beginning. As I said to you, security have to be, so that have to be checked. So that let's yeah. put it aside. Now, what is the benefit to me is the adopting layer four and don't have to adopt layer seven if you don't need it, as well as the separation, the real abstraction, the real MBN, right? It's really MBN in your infrastructure right now. You don't really need to. So this is, and this is where the name comes from. So, so that's to me, it's the more most benefit and this is where we drive it. I don't know, yeah. I don't think, as I said, cost is nice and architecture is right, is nice, but eventually you know, you're also using it. Do you know how complex is your operating system? You're not because you don't care. You're just running it, it's working. You know, do you care about eBPF? I mean, eBPF is very nice because it can make the high levels, you know, user experience better, but do you really care? Do you really, really care about this bit and the bite and what they know? No, right. you don't, right. you shouldn't, right? You're the user. So, so to me, this is this is where I think the MBN is. I think that's an yeah. ideal state, like an operations team member coming from the ops site. Ideally, we don't want to care. It's no, that we're forced to care. Exactly. <laughs> 
Which is um, fun, right? I mean, I'm an engineer. I like that, right? But I mean, yeah. honestly, honestly, like as much as we can make it easy to adopt, as much as it will become as simple as, and as I said, yeah. are we using EBP appearance? Yes. Do you need to know? But maybe. But why do you really? It's a very complex to system stuff. And by the way, that's exactly what Zillion doing, right? They're obstructing it. You're not, you cannot run eBPF as much as you want. They, they pick and choose the, the pieces of eBPF that they're leveraging because obviously eBPF, it's a low level technology. Mm -hmm. So you need to leverage in order to make the experience for the user better. But you don't need to, I don't know. It's not for the sole value following. But Once a customer adopts Ambient Mesh, does that open up new use cases that they couldn't have done before? Things like scaling out, maybe data use cases. Can you talk a little bit more about what opportunities open up once this ambient yes, message? So I will be honest, like every technology that I adopted in the beginning, you need to make first the thing that people ask yeah. you. So I can tell you that in that point, STO itself, actually, yeah, right, like it's by far the most mature service mesh that exists in the world. There is stuff that other service mesh is trying to implement right now. And they still already forget that they have it, right? I mean, it's just in terms of the maturity of where we are. So there is a lot of maturity of how people is doing it, like they, how many feature SEO as service mesh is covering. So first of all, when we introduced MBN, it was important to us to make sure that it is mature. And honestly, it's the same project. It's not a new project. It's just a different mode, right? So we, mm -hmm. the changes that we're doing there is not drastically. We just, it's a new architecture in a way, right? So, so, all those features have to, that's number one. And I think this is something that was very important to us. And we, I think that, as I said, that's where they would call it GA. But all those features are what with this, will work with that as well. So I think this is the most important thing. New features that we implement, trying to figure out if there will be more stuff that will be implemented. There is some advantage on Gateway API that we are looking at right now. But I will argue that there's a certain, I think that the amount of the, you know, we really try to say, hey, look, we got the use case right. Yeah. Just the implementation was a little bit more expensive and more, you know, hard to maintain. Now we get rid of that burden. So now it's exactly the same maturity that you will expect after six years of reporting. But, oh, seven years, I think so. And basically, just the implementation is make it easy to consume, which is what we want to do. So I don't know that there is a lot. We should think of There's probably will come more, but... Yeah, I think what one of the big things within the Kubernetes community is the developer experience, right? Trying to figure out how yes. these layers are consumed. To me, there's a potential here with ambient mesh adoption that a lot of that surface area that was a rough edge with respect to a developer experience can be yes. handled by something like exactly. ambient mesh. And the use cases then enable a better abstraction on top of Kubernetes, maybe even making Kubernetes closer to invisible to a developer when they're looking at adopting or pushing their app to you know production or to some cluster somewhere. So that's a great question. You ask about the use case. What I will tell you is that you know usually when you're talking on the mesh, definitely then you the other provider are very, very, very talking about you know the Kubernetes ecosystem, which is make a lot of sense, right? But honestly, what we see is that, you know, our customers, there's no workload that they basically did not ask for us, right? It's everything. It's Lambda and it's a multi-cluster and it's VM and it's EBPF and it's Sparky and it, everything else that you can imagine. So one of the things that we're doing with NBN is exactly that, like making sure that we will include everything. Like that's become the, there's a reason why STO was not part of Kubernetes. 
And the reason is because it's not only for Kubernetes workload. And everywhere you need to make sure that you secure an MTLS and, you know, observe. So that's nicely, you know, the mesh is laid on all your infrastructure and multi-cloud, multi-workload, multi-everything. I think this is the key. And that's the use case that we see right now. So, you know, most of our customers at least want to cloud that they provide. Yeah. And multiple services. I think we're seeing an increased adoption of Kubernetes being one of the interfaces into connecting your workloads to other services, other clouds, other cloud managed services, exactly. on-premise. And even though Istio is now part of the Kubernetes ecosystem, I think it's more of a tell around the Kubernetes ecosystem expanding beyond just containers. Exactly. And, and because you always have, most of the time, I mean, if I were looking at our customer, there's very little customer that can say they're only using Kubernetes. Honestly, most of the customers, they always have something, some VMs out there, someone, and a lot of the time mainframe, honestly, right? A lot of the bank that we're working on is they have a lot of VM, way more VM than Kubernetes. Yeah. And they have ECS yeah. a lot of the time. Right, which is, you know, not that's everybody, nice yeah, you might surprise, but not everybody's <laughs> using Kubernetes. So I think that's the, and you know, even added tooling, this is something that Solar is working on a lot, but I mean, we talked a little bit about the gateway become part of the mesh, right? Kind of like integrated into the mesh. So developer corner is something that is extremely important in that space. And there is, in the CNCF, there is a project called Nextate, which mm-hmm. is really, really popular right now, came from Spotify. So Solo, for instance, is part of their stack because we are understanding how important it is for people to consume those microservices, not only to make sure that they're connected secure, but eventually you have an application team somewhere and they need to consume it. So we build um, ours on basically next. So, you know, we have a plugin and so on. So again, it's just working more with customer. You see what they're adopting. It's really mm-hmm. nice thing to kind of like beat that technology and enable, as you say, it's the planning, not that different than what docking, right? The planning for infrastructure, just the networking planning in that case. We had a question on FIPS compliance and potentially. Yeah. Someone said it, they think they thought it was, I just wanted to bring it up for the people on audio that don't get to read the chat. (laughs) You do have a FIPS page on, I I do the same thing. I'm like, well, it was answered in chat. Oh, that's right. We have a podcast. (laughs) So you have a page when you're deploying ambient mesh, is it the same binary of Istio Yes, that it's you, like, it's, just, it's like it's just a switch we're flipping, essentially. It's not a separate project that we have yeah. to install. It's a mod. No, no, no. Like, I mean, in service mesh, you have what I call a, you know, a data plan and a control plan. Data day, a plan is usually a proxy. It can do a lot of stuff, but it's pretty dumb. You need to tell him what to do. That's what the control plan is doing. So the control plan in STO called STOD, that's the same thing. We didn't change that. It's all good. Now, the data plan, so... For the layer seven, we're still using Envoy, which is, you know, what we're calling the waypoint in the MBN world. For the layer four encryption and all of this, we wrote in Rust something called Zitana, to basically bring you all the functionality of this. So the STOD is basically they're giving configuration to Envoy or to Zitana or to the ingress, right? Doesn't matter. It's always done. So now it's just another way for him to do this. And so that's how it works. So yeah, it's still FIPS compliance. It's very exciting that it's FIPS compliance. There's tons of government, you know, customers that running it or people that selling it to government that running it. So, so they have to use FIPS compliance and it is. So yeah. Pretty exciting. Normal and I are on the East Coast US. So, uh, and we both have prior government 
experience. So we, we, if we are not asking the FIPS question, someone else is going to ask for it. So. <laughs> That's yeah. very familiar territory. That yeah. Always yeah I mean, they used to do so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had a it's project awesome. a few years ago dealing with FIPS compliant open SSL binaries and yeah, yeah, it was a, it's always a hassle, but necessary. I have, so we're over the hour, but I'm going to throw a, I'm going to change the subject real quick. Cause I have a question now that I know you have this background in unikernels. Cause it, like you said, it definitely had a moment, right? There was a moment where we were all excited about unikernels. Yeah. I, I remember Docker bought at least one unikernel company. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've been talking about cloud, I'm going to call it cloud native WebAssembly, yeah. essentially WebAssembly on servers in Kubernetes. And I don't know how much you've been following that, but do you feel oh, like- I do, I did. I, did. Okay, like, I mean, cool, cool, cool. we use WebAssembly in order to dynamically load customization to Envoy. So we know WebAssembly really, really well. So probably the question that you wanted to ask, would it be the next thing that everybody will oh, use? Actually, no, I'm sorry. My, yeah. it's, a little, it's a little bit of a curveball, I think. Do you think, okay, so being a fan of Unikernels, I've, at KubeCon, by the way, I keep running into Unikernel fans. Like they're out there. Like a, I know, a person, they still send me after right eight right years. Here. Yeah. Yeah. So with the on so the coming of WASM and the WASI standard and what I hope that we're eventually going to get to with Kubernetes where it just works. It's everywhere. It's another runtime. It's on all the nodes. It's just transparent to the developer. Do you think that like that's even less reason now that we're going to end up caring about unikernels? <laughs> like is the future that yeah, we're not we're not going to get back to unikernels? I don't think we were here about unicorns mainly because there's no one who's working on it physically. So I don't think actively. Yeah. So I don't think that that's something that will happen. I will say that after there was the mini VM initiative, mm -hmm. I think in Microsoft and some stuff that didn't catch. Now there is WASM. I think it's catching a bit more, but honestly, I also like, as I said to you, here's that question. Like in order to right now reinvent market, new market or reset market, it's really need to be really beneficial because every new technology that you introduce, the tool set is not mature enough. And what we did with Docker was so amazing because we said, oh my God, it's going to change our way we're doing it. So I get it, right? So this is why it's successful. What the market is ready for, and I don't shift, I don't think the WebAssembly benefit will be as strong as exactly like the Unicanon was and then MiniVM was it. I think that there is some use cases when I was working on, on, on the unikernel, I was talking about serverless as an interesting use case because you want to spin it way faster and with container it's a little bit slower. And security-wise, because they, you know, like think about all these like hardware, I don't know, like speak of today they're still running Linux container, like Linux. Right. A little right. bit over here. And the surface of attack is bigger. So if you really want something very secure. Maybe Unicare slash WASS, all this stuff is probably a better solution for that. I will argue that it's very a niche yeah. kind of like use case. So I don't know, like, you know, and whether you're getting a little bit milliseconds faster, I just don't know yeah. that it's worth the work in order to make it easy to operate. That will be honest. Yeah. So I personally not a big, like, I'm not, even though I really, I'm excited about WASM itself. And as I said, we leverage it for Envoy. I don't know if you can run the native code, write a native code, it will be faster. <laughs> yeah. So Brett and Adib, I think we can see the impact of those unikernel features in the subsequent advances in like the container runtime, the design of Wasm. It's the imprint of what unikernels excelled at is in these other technologies. Right. 
Yeah, like it affected things, but it didn't necessarily become the thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a similar opinion, so I'm glad to hear you say stuff to confirm my own biases because I'm a fan of the idea of things like unikernels and WebAssembly, but I, like you, I also know that like we're still talking about like there's still people implementing Docker, right? Like we just celebrated, we're about to celebrate the this is the tenth year, I think, yeah, the tenth year of Docker. And we still have a significant portion of the industry still trying to figure out how to use containers in a lot of places, still a lot of Kubernetes adoption going on. And then there's all these new things. And it's like, it, it, sometimes I wonder, are these technologies too early? Like we're yeah, maybe yeah, we're five years too early or something. Yeah. And also, are they needed? Like, I mean, let me give you an example, okay? eBPF, a lot of people are talking about, I'm a big fan, I know. So I want to be very clear. Let's put it aside. I think it's very useful. We're using it every day. I can tell you right. that much. Right? Noted. <laughs> right. But a lot of the marketing tools is going and talking about the fact that it's fast, which it is. The question is for how much and who our customers care. So as I said, we're talking right now, some of the time it's like 10 of a millisecond. Is that really why you want to change all your stack to something you know more complicated? Yeah. No, you're not because it's not meaningful. You don't even know that stack. So to me... This is one thing that is very, very important. And I think you said that, I mean, maturity, it's important. And to me, what driving adoption is user experience. So it's fine that the marketing is going and saying, oh, you know, it's faster, it's faster. I'm telling you, what I see for my customers is that they have a quota of latency. That's how much they're willing to be. If it's above that, they're not okay. But if it's in between that, you know what? Then they want features. They want features, that's what they want. They want usability of feature. They don't care about the fact that it's a little bit microsecond more, more expensive in latency. And that's, I think, what people, it's, you know, definitely in the open source and a lot of the time, you know, I'm a technology still. I mean, I worked in EMC. All my job, what, all what I did was having fun with the technology. And we did amazing stuff with the Unicurl and so on. But honestly, I didn't think about adoption. I did, it wasn't my job in EMC. <laughs> and I think that the technology that's not being adopted will die because eventually people will stop working on this. So that's to yeah. me is, is that if there's something I learned. So it's like, you know, focus on the right thing and focus on user experience way more important than the micro or millisecond. Of the, you know, it will give you a bit more technology, but you need to reinvent all those tooling. So, yes, yeah. I like the uh, saying, and I don't know who I first heard this from was, you don't have a performance problem until you have a performance problem. Right. I, and there's people that there is. I'm not saying that no one care about performance, right? There right. is this. I do get it, right? I'm just saying that most of the organization, it's more of the, maybe the telco of the world, maybe the hyperscale of the world, most of the rest is probably, does not have those latency. Again, there is a budget. You can't go crazy. But, you know, inside that budget of the latency, you should be more than one. Well, I'm going to leave it at that. I thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.